listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Good to be here this morning. Open your Bibles to Luke 12. And as you're turning there, um, let me encourage you. Every week we send out an email. All that's going on here on Monday, we send out um, an email to you. And you say, well, I'm not getting it. But before you call us, check your, uh, your junk folder or spam or whatever. But there's a Monday email and a Thursday email that goes out every week to keep people updated on all of the things that are going on. For example... Our ladies said prayer this morning at 9 o'clock, and they had a great group of ladies that sat there and, and just prayed. They want to be uh, women who pray. And you say, well, I didn't know anything about that. Well, that goes out in our email on Monday and Thursday. Um, so please make sure you sign up for that and you're plugged into a lot of the different things that are going on in our body. We're going to have um, auditions coming up. We'll be announcing that. Maybe you sing. Maybe you play uh, an instrument, any kind of instrument. We'd like to know that. We'd like to put together different uh, bands and uh, instruments. We definitely need a, a drummer. We've got Dave Johnson taking drum lessons, and he's working on that as quickly and as thoroughly as he can. Um, but maybe you have gifts that you could use here in this place. And so let me encourage you, keep up with those emails, participate in auditions, let us know um, uh, about your gifts so we can plug you in to serve here at South Point. In, in Luke 12, um, verses 1 to 12, we're looking at, um, and this is the title today, Fear God, Not Man. Jesus is talking to his disciples uh, about the influence and the power of the Pharisees, and particularly the leaven of the Pharisees, the sin of the Pharisees, which he's identified as hypocrisy. And we'll see that in the text in um, just a moment. But um, we've got to come to grips with this reality. And, and Ed, Edgar Welch said this, and, and I, I know what he's saying is, is true. He said, life is dominated by the concept that we call the fear of man. When Jesus is saying, don't fear men, but fear God, many of us are smitten with this idea of the fear of man. The fear of man is a major theme in the Bible and in life in general. It can be summarized as this. We replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of God, we fear others. Edgar Welch said that in when, when man is big and God is small. Let me read that again. We replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of God, we fear others. Fear of man is when we fear man or feel compelled in an unhealthy way to please others or fear not pleasing others, to please others or not pleasing others. Or get this, the flip side of it is this, we enjoy the power, we want others to feel our importance, and we want to feel them fearing us. You see, there's the reverse side of it. You say, oh, I don't deal with any of those. There, there are 10 questions that you can ask as it relates to the fear of man. Do you struggle with peer pressure? Are you an overcommitted people pleaser? You just can't do enough. You can't say no. Have, 
has, has serving turned into sinning because you're unable to say no? That's three. Question four, is self-esteem a critical concern for you? Are embarrassment or shyness common for you? Do you second guess, guess decisions based on what people think? Do other people often make you depressed, angry, or drive you crazy? I think everybody could say amen to that. Do you avoid people? Do you take too much responsibility for others? Are you committed to being nice, making peace, or avoiding conflict? Now, somebody here may say, I'll tell you what, I don't care what anybody thinks. All I care about is what God thinks. Well, I just want to let you in on a secret. If all you care about is what God thinks, then he's very concerned about how you love others. Don't miss that. Don't say, I'll tell you what, I just fear God, and I don't care. I, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't think it's any more righteous to say you don't care what anybody thinks than it is for us to be smitten by and under control of other people and us fearing them. So don't think that if you didn't say yes to any of those things, you may be on the giving end of that like the Pharisees were when they placed people under their spell and under their fear. So the text is going to um, show us this, this fear of man, dealing with the issue of the fear of man, particularly in the religious realm. So if you will look at Luke chapter 12, I want to read the first verse and then try to answer a couple of questions by going back into Luke chapter 11, some things that we looked at last week briefly. I just want to touch on them and move then rapidly into Luke chapter 12. It says in the meantime, so Jesus is having this confrontation with the Pharisees. Last week, we looked at, we looked at the, the um, responding to proclamation. Jesus is preaching. Secondly, and after Jesus preached and after Jesus healed, they said, this guy is, is, is operating under the power of Beelzebub. So responding to proclamation. Secondly, responding to illumination. Jesus talks about the, the, the light, the light of the world. He is the light of the world. Seeing the light of revelation and responding to it. They are looking at Jesus Christ in the eyes and they're calling him Satan. So responding to proclamation, responding to illumination. And then thirdly, last week we touched on responding to confrontation. And there were, there were two confrontations. One was with the Pharisees and one was with the lawyer. And we'll get into that here in, in just a, a second. But I, I want to answer this question. Who are the Pharisees? We, we need to answer that question to understand them because, because Jesus is dealing with them. He says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people, uh, it could have been 10,000 people, had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So who are the Pharisees? The word uh, Pharisee or a Pharisee in general was somebody that believed that he was separate from everyone else because of his zeal for the Mosaic law and his zeal for rabbinic tradition. There, there was the law that was given to us, given to Moses by God, but then there was rabbinic tradition with all of the, the rabbinical, the rabbis, all of their writings of their interpretation of what the law meant. And they gave equal weight to their writings, to their commentaries, to all of their extra laws that they added to the law of God. And so the Pharisees uh, were people who separated themselves because they believed that their zeal for the Mosaic law and their Rabbinic, their zeal for rabbinic tradition set them apart. Where did they come from? The Pharisees rose to prominence during the intertestamental period. You say, when is the intertestamental period? It's between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years. We don't see the Pharisees um, b before we come to the book of Matthew. We don't see uh, the, the synagogues before we come to the Jesus era. 
But in that intertestamental period, we see uh, the, the Pharisees coming into prominence. And, and they were an offshoot of, of Hasidic Jews or uh, Hasidim, or I can't say the CH noise that goes along with the Hebrew there in that. And basically, the Pharisees or the Hasidic Jews were opposed to the Hellenization of Jewish culture. In other words, you've got uh, Alexander the Great um, just conquering the world. And then what happened as a result of that was Greek. Greek culture became the predominant culture of society. And, and as the Greek culture forced itself in, into the Jewish culture, the Hasidic Jews and consequently then the Pharisees became those who said, we're not going to let Greek culture uh, influence Jewish culture. We're not going to let Greek culture influence Judaism. So uh, that's the Pharisees. They're always on the lookout for anything that might threaten what they believe. Someone has said that the Pharisees were morally straight. They kept the law. They were theologically conservative. They defended the faith, and they had a concern for personal godliness, all things that we would want to say about ourselves or at least aspire to. As we look at the confrontation, we see a couple of things from the text. First of all, I think we see the animosity of the Pharisees. Now, some people are impressed with animosity. In fact, a lot of movements are started today and a lot of people are followed today because they're always going around telling us what the problems are. They're getting very angry and very upset. And certainly there are problems. There are, there are things we need to look out for. There are things that we need to deal with. But the Pharisees were these people that were running around looking for everything wrong, identifying everything that was wrong. And they knew more about what they were against than what they were for. And that's a common thing in the church today. So we see their animosity as we, as we go back to Luke chapter 11, and um, you can read through there. We read it last week, but I, I just want to point out several things that we saw about them. First of all, a Pharisee invited Jesus to eat. Jesus went to eat, but Jesus didn't wash his hands ceremonial, ceremonially. And they were, the text tells us, absolutely shocked. They were shocked that the Son of God came to eat with them and he didn't go through their ceremonial ritual. They were shocked out of their mind that Jesus violated their man-made ceremony of ritual cleansing, which essentially was symbolic. Our being shocked at the actions of others is a neglect of the sinfulness in our own heart and a desire on our part to inflict shame and control. And that's what they wanted to do. They, they, were, they were shocked that Jesus didn't practice these external activities, but the external activities are designed to make sure nobody sees what's going on in our interior world. They're a smokescreen. They're a mask. This is, this is not what we really look like. Who we really are is somebody who's very corrupt in our, in our inner being. We're sinful. We need a Savior. We can't be good enough on our own. But let's go, let's go do some rituals. Let's go make some rules. Let's go join this massive institution. The Pharisees went through this ritual cleansing because it made them feel holy and clean, and it made them look holy and clean. It was impressive, but it didn't do anything to change their heart. People who emphasize the outside are probably using their disdain for others' nonconformity as a means of covering up or ignoring their own internal corruption. Please make note of that. That's what the Pharisees did. They were shocked that Jesus wasn't following one of their rules. Absolutely shocked. 
The second thing we see is, and Jesus dealt with him. He said, hey, you guys are tithing. You're going in and you're getting all of your spices out of the spice cabinet and you're, 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 you're getting the dust and you're just taking 10% of everything and you're setting it apart and you feel like you're doing well. He said, you don't love God and you don't love people. You have no compassion. So you're trying to get everything right and follow every rule and you're putting the tithe under a microscope, but you don't care about people. Beware of using the external tithe as a smokescreen to cover and guard internal corruption. Loving God and caring for people will cost you much more than a tithe ever will. Okay? Sometimes the tithe is the easiest thing to do. Now, Jesus did say, you should have done that. You should make sure that, that you are generous, that you are giving, but he said, you use that as a smokescreen to cover up the corruption that's in your heart. Thirdly, in this text, Jesus is addressing this issue. They thought they were okay if other people were impressed with them. They thought they were okay if other people thought they were okay. You want the, you want the best seats in the synagogue? Yeah, they want the best seats in the synagogue. Guess who gets the best seat in the synagogue? The people that give the most, the ones that are recognized. And those seats were probably a front-facing uh, uh, congregation facing seats so everybody could look at them and know who they were. And they're like, man, this guy's right with God. I'll tell you what, if anybody's going to heaven, it's that guy. Did you see him sitting up front today? Do you know what that means? Do you know how holy that guy is because he's recognized? And so the Pharisees were just like, hey, we're okay if other people think we're okay. In other words, and Jesus covered it in Matthew, if we're, if we're praying impressively and if we're giving alms impressively and if we're fasting impressively and people look at us and they say, what a man of God, what a man of God. Look at him. Look at him go. Look at how spiritual he is. They thought, well, if everybody else thinks I'm spiritual, then I must be spiritual. But again, they neglected the internal corruption that was in them. And Jesus concluded by saying, you are an unmarked grave. Everything you touch with all of your religion, with all of your persuasion, with all of your coercion, when people get close to you, they end up getting infected. And that's what the Pharisees did. They infected people with their godless religion, their dead religion that could not give life. And then Jesus addressed the lawyer. And he told the lawyer, he said, and I mentioned this last week, he said, you put, put burdens on people that they cannot bear. What a great way to keep people under your control if you can put burdens on them that they cannot bear. I, I, I love uh, what Jesus said when he said in, in Luke 4 that the, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Listen to this. Jesus doesn't put burdens on us. He said so himself, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, that are being beaten up and putting all of this weight of performance on you by this religious institution that is causing you to fear them and their rules. He said, come to me and I will give you rest. He, he said to the lawyers, you put burdens on people they can't bear, yet you in, with your legal minds find loopholes for yourself. You put expectations on people that they can't meet and that is anti-gospel because the gospel brings life and freedom. 
He went on to tell them, he said, you have killed the prophets. Anytime someone has come to you with the word of God, you have figured out a way, anytime they offended you, to, to dismiss them, to reject them, to literally kill them. This is a common thing for Judaism to do, these Pharisees to do. They had everything right. And by the way, if I'm right and you disagree with me, voila, you're wrong. Right. And if I'm right, because I love the word of God, but you love the word of God and you're wrong, then you must be Beelzebub. You must not be of God. This is where they were. And, and they, 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 they put these weights on people. They killed the people that disagreed with him. And they felt just in doing that. By the way, they're going to kill Jesus. By the way, they're going to kill these guys here in Luke 12 that Jesus is talking to and warning. And he said, hey, y'all have killed anybody that's come to you and brought the truth to you because you thought you were the only one that understood the truth. And anybody that disagreed with you, there's no room for disagreement because I am so right with God and I'm so right on the scriptures that anybody that disagrees with me must be disagreeing with God. That's justification for killing somebody. And he basically told them at the end of chapter 11, he said, woe to you lawyers, verse 52, for you have taken the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves and you hinder those who are entering. He said, you have locked up the truth and you have thrown away the key. You see the truth of the scriptures point to none other than Jesus Christ. And when you take scripture and it does anything else besides point to Jesus Christ and him crucified and the life that can be ours because of his spirit who dwells in us. When we do anything with the scriptures beside that, we're taking the key to the scriptures. Jesus is the key to the scriptures and we're, we're taking it and throwing it away and we're not giving anybody access to the truth that scripture intends to reveal to them by the power of the spirit. They're calling Jesus Beelzebub. We come to chapter 12 and we see that there's obviously something very persuasive and compelling about Pharisees. We, we have to admit that. There's something very persuasive and compelling about a religious system that has everything figured out. Something very compelling about that. If, if it weren't, if they wouldn't have so much influence. If it weren't, when Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he's standing on trial, you wouldn't have the entire crowd incited and influenced and fearful of the Pharisees crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So there's, there's something, let us not, let us not miss that. There, there is something that is alluring and powerful and attractive that draws us in our flesh into something like Pharisaism. Every religious institution, every religious organization has a faction of Pharisees in it. Those who emphasize the external, those who are hypersensitized to the failure of lesser believers to live up to their rules and standards. Those who have a graceless hatred for sin and a controlling and unforgiving disdain for sinners. Those and, and those that they disagree with, they're everywhere and they're here. But I just want to remind you of 
of, um, of Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. And this just jumped off the page as we were looking at this in, in our uh, DNA this week. Um, the, the fifth book of the New Testament, Romans 7, excuse me, the sixth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans and we do that when we can't find our place and we're, we're scared of silence. Romans chapter 7, listen to this. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's all a Pharisee can do. That's all a Pharisee can do. That's it. That's it. But now, but now, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth and lived a perfect life and bore our sins in his body and satisfied the righteous requirements of a holy God on behalf of our sin and rose victorious over sin and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he says, believe in me. Believe in what I've done. Rest in me. You can't live a perfect life. I have lived that perfect life for you. Will you accept the perfect life that I've lived? Will you accept the fact that I completely and absolutely fulfilled the law on your behalf and I'm giving that to you? Would you accept the fact that, that you can't pay for your sin, that you can't outrun your sin, that you can't jump over your sin for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God? There's nothing that you can do in your efforts, in your performance. There's nothing you, you and I can do, nothing. But trust the one who overcame our sin, who fulfilled all righteousness, who satisfied the righteous requirements of God. It is paid in full. And so he says, trust me. Trust the life that I've lived. Trust the, the death that I died in your place for your sin. Trust my victory over sin and resurrection and believe that if you will rest in me, that I too will resurrect you from the grave when you die. The grave cannot hold you down. So we see it clearly in Scripture what the Pharisees are doing. A second question, I asked a question, who were the Pharisees? But a second question is this, why would I want to be a Pharisee? And, and when, he, when we ask the question, who are the Pharisees? And we see this confrontation with the Pharisees, we see the animosity of the Pharisees. And that is alluring on some levels. But there's also the popularity of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were extremely popular. Why would I want to be a Pharisee? The Pharisees or the organization or the institution of the Pharisees was a powerful institution. It was highly organized. It was well-defined. It was affirming. You could note your progress. You could say, hey, man, you're doing good. Look at the boxes you're checking. Look at how well you are performing. There, there was praise, and it was, it was something that was persuasive and comforting. And, and why, would, why would we find comfort in something that is pharisaical? We would find comfort in that because it gives us identity, status, superiority, and self-righteousness. We're all looking for something to identify with. I could say, who do you listen to, right? What podcast do you listen to? What organizations are you part of? What meetings have you gone to? Who, who, what do you read? All of those things in many cases are people that think along certain lines and, and subscribe to uh, certain groups because that gives me some identity, 
Many of us have been steeped in that. I know that I have. I would want to be a Pharisee because it gives me a sense of identity. I don't have to think too much about it. I know what all the rules were, <laughs> and I followed them well, and the ones that I didn't follow, I hid really well. Hid really well. That's what Pharisees do. We know we can't keep all the rules, but we can make people think that we keep the rules, and that's what's going on here in the text. It gives us a sense of identity. It gives us a sense of status. You can move up. You can be recognized. It gives us a sense of superiority. There's always somebody to criticize. There's always somebody to find fault with. And it gives us a sense of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is a powerful, elusive, deceptive, subtle thing. Why would I want to be a Pharisee? Because it's not ambiguous. It's not ambiguous. It's not mysterious. In fact, it's not even spiritual. Those are things that we can't take and put in a box and say, I I've got this down pat. I, I, I know what I need to do to be spiritual. No, coming to Christ is not, I know what I need to do to be spiritual. There's something about me that wants to earn it. I'm a Pharisee. It's not ambiguous. It's not mysterious. It's not even spiritual. It doesn't leave me wondering where I stand. It's performance-based with standards to maintain and boxes to check and lesser disciples to inspect and criticize and judge. Being a Pharisee is also competitive, and we like competition. When we compete, we want to win, and we like to have this sense of, I have won, I have been victorious, as opposed to resting in the victory that Christ gives us. Being a Pharisee gives me the illusion that I'm in control, all in the name of Jesus. So I have this God illusion that I think I can control. And all of that plays into Jesus now talking to the Pharisees because what we see here 2,000 years later is who in the world would want to be a Pharisee? But Jesus is trying to convince his disciples that, guys, you don't want to be a part of this group. This, this, it's a subtle thing to fall into this attraction, this magnetism, that this great institution that is, that is unchallengeable in their culture. Right? So, what do we see when we look at the text? I want to read through it. We're going to break it down into three parts. Jesus says this. I'm going to go right to what Jesus said. He said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The word leaven is a word for sin. We can, we can get some insights into the concept of leaven in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, and he's dealing with the church who had a man in the church who was in open, blatant sin, and the church was not even responding to it. They were just accepting it. They're like, hey, brother, how's everything going in your sinful relationship with, you know, your dad's wife? They weren't bothered by it. They weren't mourning it. They weren't dealing with it. They weren't addressing it. Verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole Lump. So when you've got leaven and it gets in bread, what happens to that bread is it swells up. And so, just by way of illustration, I've I've got some uh, I've got some bread here, and this would be the representation of unleavened bread, right? And it's like our lives. This this unleavened bread, we take some some yeast, we take some leaven, and we put it on that. Whoop, too much there. I thought the lid was closed. 
Reminds me of my grandkids putting salt on their food. You put this leaven on the unleavened bread, it gets in the unleavened bread, and voila, before you know it, what happens is it looks like this. It's all swollen up. And so Jesus is warning them about this, this sin of the Pharisees, which is like leaven. And, and when it's sprinkled in, just a little bit is sprinkled in and added to your life, you're like, that's okay, I can handle this. I can control this. This isn't even affecting me. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetop. Private rooms were like the inner room that didn't have exterior walls that you could go into, for example, to pray. Go into your inner room and pray. In the inner room, it was thought that you could say things in the inner room that nobody would find out about, right? And that's what they're saying. There are things that we've done. There are things that we've, we've said. There are things that we've thought. And we hide them. He says it's going to be proclaimed on the housetops. We move to a next section, and, and this is where we sort of get into the fear of man. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. After the, after, and after that, have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. He's saying, don't fear man, fear God. So we're not making up the fear of man idea that's in the text. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Are not, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I read a statistic that said, if you're a redhead, you've got about 90,000. If you have dark hair, you've got 120,000. And if you have blonde hair, you've got 145,000 hairs on your head. Okay? So... Maybe nobody knows what color your hair is, but we can count them and figure it out. Amen. Jesus knows. God knows everything. He moves again to this issue of external pressure, right? This, this issue of, of falling under fearing man when it comes to standing up for who Jesus is. And you've got to understand when Jesus says these things about himself, he's saying, I am God. Listen to what he says. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the spirit of man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, and they're telling you to deny Christ, right? They're telling you to deny Christ. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Three things from the text that I just want to point out. Number one, don't fall into the trap of thinking that image is more important than reality. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that image is more important than reality. We should fear the leaven of the Pharisees. Why? Because we are all susceptible to the sin of the Pharisees. 
The sin of the Pharisees, hypocrisy, is an imminent threat. It is a clear and present danger to every one of us. And it can happen even, according to this text, the closest followers of Jesus Christ. Right? He's talking to his friends. Hypocrisy is common in the religious world. Let us also remind ourselves, Jesus is not warning them so that they can spot a Pharisee. He's not doing that. This text today is not saying, all right, you, you amazing people, let me tell you how you can spot those rotten Pharisees. The text is given to us today not so that we can spot a Pharisee. It's given to us so that we won't become a Pharisee. It's not given to us so we can spot a hypocrite. So when you read the text, what are you saying? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're a hypocrite. Hey, can I, just, can I just take that ammunition away from you? You are right. I'm a hypocrite. You are right. You got me. Boom, right there. Because you know what? If this is the description of a hypocrite, then there are things that I try to hide. Right? There are things that I say that I think I've said in the inner room that I wouldn't want anybody to hear. But lest you be shocked. <laughs> Can those who are not guilty of what this text say, please stand up this morning. And I'm not trying to make myself feel any better. I'm just here to tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ wouldn't warn his closest people about these things unless they were subject to their threat. So, if you're here today and you're just like, I'm not coming back to this church, preacher stand up and say that. You might be a hypocrite. You might be a Pharisee. Because when I read that, I thought, man, <laughs> just hit me between the eyes. Right? You say, you say, oh, you deliberately lie to people? No, I don't. But we project images to hide the real condition of our heart, right? We do that. And so Jesus comes at his disciples, and he's not trying to give them this pamphlet or guidebook on how to spot them stinking Pharisees. He's trying to talk to them about the possibility of they themselves being hypocrites, and experiencing this leaven. Now, leaven is sin. It's added to dough. If you know anything about leaven and dough and all of those different things that I don't know anything about that I've trusted my wife to for 41 years, and we are healthy as a result of that and probably carry too much weight because of all the great nourishment that she provides joyfully. She knows more about leaven than I do. We know that when we put it in dough, it works slowly, it works secretly, it works silently. Leaven is subtle, leaven is, leaven is unnoticed, leaven is quiet, leaven is incremental, leaven is not easily detected, leaven expands, leaven infiltrates, leaven pervades, and leaven thoroughly, finally corrupts, according to 1 Corinthians 5 text, right? 
So he's saying, beware of this leaven that's just sprinkled in, this sin that's just sprinkled in that we let go unnoticed or that, or that we think we can handle. Because while you think you're here, you end up here and you're like, how in the world did I get here? So beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and particularly as it relates to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is an external picture. It's an image. It's a perception. And, and it's, it's creating something on the outside that doesn't match who we are on the inside. Hypocrisy is like putting on a mask to hide who I really am. So we should fear the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Secondly, we should stop working so hard to hide the truth about ourselves because it will all be exposed one day. We should stop working so hard to hide the real truth about ourselves because it's going to come out. <laughs> Everybody's going to know. So why don't we just be real now? We see the subtlety of hypocrisy, but guess what? We see the futility of hypocrisy. Why do it? Why hide? I don't think any of us is at the place, or many of us are perhaps at the place. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You see, the, the, the greatest fallacy of the hypocrite is not that he wakes up one day and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to project an image that makes everybody think that I'm something that I really am not. I don't think people are running around thinking like that. I think what it ends up being is us not recognizing the sin in our own heart or dealing with issues in our own heart. And we end up saying that we don't have sin and we hide or have convinced ourselves. We lie to ourselves. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves and our hypocrisy and putting on our mask and trying to project an image so that others will think well of us is self-deception. Ralph Davis said, how useless the shelter of all our devious fig leaves. What an incentive to candor, openness, and transparency. As I've already said, this should cause all of us to gulp. This should cause all of us to feel conviction. This should, should cause all of us to come face to face with the reality of our own lives because I would say confidently that all of us is guilty of this on some level. The truth of the matter is that the, the, the seeds of the sin of the Pharisees are growing in the hearts of all of us, and that should cause, be cause for alarm and for soul-searching and for confession and for grace. There is, no, there is no solution to our sin apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. There's no solution. No, no amount of facade, no amount of, of masks, no amount of image building and projection is going to solve the issue of our sin. I keep going back to 1 John 1 because it says if we walk in the light, what happens in the light? Our sin is exposed. If we collectively, not individually, walk in the light together 
as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with another, and we're having fellowship with the Trinity. And the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanses us from all sin. So what we're doing is we're, we're being open and honest about our sin, and we're bringing it to the cross. We're bringing it to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And there is cleansing. There is cleansing. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ became that, that loaf of leaven so that he might die and pay the penalty so that we could be unleavened, so that we would not have sin in us, that we would stand before God and be declared guilty. Beware of someone who highlights the sins of others and white outs your own sin. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We know we have been affected by the yeast of hypocrisy when we pretend to be holier than we are, establish our own rules, are unwilling to confess sin, and comfortable with private sins as long as they stay in the dark. And so, so Jesus is compelled to look at his closest followers and say, hey, guys, this could be happening to you. And I'm standing up here saying, I know this is happening to me, and I'm quite certain whether you're willing to admit it or not that it's happening to you. Or we're just wasting our time. The second thing we see in the text is this, don't fall into the trap of fearing man more than you fear God. He starts in verse 4, and, and he's, he's saying essentially these things. If we are in Christ, the fear of death should be one of the least of our worries. Did you hear me? As, as, we, as we come out of COVID and it has gripped our hearts with, with fear, and it has. All of us, right? Why? Because we fear death. We have, we have probably the, the greatest fear. We have probably the greatest resources to prevent death that we've ever had in history. We, we're utilizing the, the resources to prevent death in a, at a greater level than we ever have in history until social medicine finally takes over and it's well on its way. I get made fun of because of the 80s, Pat. But back then, if you had insurance, you could go to the doctor that day and get surgery the next day and not get a bill. <laughs> You know, nowadays you can't see a doctor for three weeks and you can't get surgery for six months. And then you're going to pay, be paying for it for the next 30 years. But, but all of that enters into this idea of our fear of death. We would, we would, it seems, do anything to keep from dying, although we know we're going to die. Right? We think that death is the worst thing that could happen to us. But if we are in Christ, the fear of death should be one of the least of our worries. In, in this case, the, the Pharisees had the law on their side. They could manipulate the scriptures to justify murder. In this case, they had history on their side because they did kill the prophets. And they did kill those who would come proclaiming the truth. And they were going to kill Jesus. And they were going to kill the followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew their plan and in the face of certain death and in the face of those who could kill you for essentially no reason at all, Jesus says, don't fear those who can simply just kill you physically. In fact, he says, if you are in Christ and they kill you, number one, you're better off 
Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if, if we are killed, we are better off, number one. But secondly, if we are killed, that's all that they can do is kill us. That's what he's saying. They do not control or determine eternal outcomes. They do not control our eternal destiny. So if we're in Christ, the fear of death should be one of the least of our worries. I'm not going to step out in front of a car. I'm not going to, you know, go home and close the garage door and leave the car running. Right? I've got sensors up in my house. If the natural gas is somehow escaping and, and I don't want to fall asleep and not wake up, I'm going to try to take every preventative measure that I can. I'm not telling you to go do something crazy. I'm just saying that I think we're just a little too worried about death to the point that we might even surrender the faith that we say that we hold, and that's the point that Jesus is making. Don't fear death so much. Don't fear people that will kill you for your faith so much. Don't fear man so much. Don't fear this per pervasive, pressure-packed system of the Pharisees so much that, that your fear of death would cause you to forfeit your faith. Don't fear those, he would say in this text, those who intimidate, who threaten, and who pressure us to conform to their religious expectations. And that's what this system was. Fear God and fear his judgment. It is the score that God keeps that matters. That's what he's telling us in the text. God knows everything. God's keeping score. God is, is so perceptive. If you look at a flock of birds and there are five birds that you have purchased and one of them dies. God is so perceptive and so attentive and so um, knowledgeable. He knows everything, all knowing that he even knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He is so perceptive. He's so interested. He's so caring. He's so amazing that he knows the number of hair uh, on your head. This is a God who is omniscient and knows everything. This is a God who is all powerful. This is a God who is just. This is a God who is good. This is a God who is going to look out for you. He is also the God who can not only take your life, but determines your eternal destiny. So rather than fearing this fierce institution with all of its power and all of, all of its pomp and all of its ceremony, fear God. Fear God. Don't fear man. Fear God. That doesn't mean you're angry at people. That doesn't mean you say, I don't care what anybody thinks. What it means is ultimately you're resting in who God is to provide for you who you think you are. And then as we look at verses 4 to 7, stop trying to project an image because you fear man. Be real and honest and transparent because you feel God. Fear God. It is, it, is, it is this desire to, uh, this leaven that is in us, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, which drives us to have this desire to project an image that causes people to say good things about us and our spirituality. 
when he's essentially telling us don't fear people to the point that you never deal with the real issues that are in your heart. Because what's wrong with me is not that I'm not projecting a good enough image. What's wrong with me is the sin and the corruption that's in my heart. And if, if my, my religion captures me and causes me not to deal with this, then it doesn't matter what image I project or what rules I follow. It's the, the transforming power of Jesus Christ that changes us on the inside. Not the external pressure that religion applies that calls us to perform on the outside. The third thing we see in the text is this. Don't fall into the trap of trading suffering for security. Don't fall into the trap of trading suffering for security. And here's what he said. There is no wiggle room when it comes to the full and accurate acknowledgement or confession of who Jesus Christ is. There is no wiggle room when it comes to the full and accurate acknowledge, acknowledgement or confession of who Jesus Christ is. The text says this, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I'm not fearing men. I'm not fearing men's religious beliefs. I'm not trying to find a place of compromise. I'm not trying to say, oh, yeah, yeah, your, your view of Jesus is okay and my view of Jesus is okay and we'll just all hold our view of Jesus and I won't criticize your view of Jesus. If you don't criticize my view of Jesus, let's all just hold hands and sing kumbaya and get along with each other. No, he's saying you better under every single circumstance, no matter who you're standing before, you better acknowledge that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and there's no way out of that. There's no wiggle room. The God of heaven is, is, not, is not Allah. Now that sounds really good and culturally that makes everybody think, oh, you're great, you're amazing, you're progressive. No, Jesus Christ is the, the one and only Son of God. He is God in flesh. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. We are not universalists. We believe in the essentiality of the atoning work of Jesus Christ and you will die and split hell wide open apart from resting and trusting in what Christ has done on the cross to pay for your sin and you have no other hope apart from Jesus Christ. Everyone who acknowledges me before men when you get to heaven, the Son of Man is going to acknowledge you before the angels. There is no wiggle room when it comes to the full acknowledgement and accurate confession of who Jesus Christ is. Secondly, the temptation is to find some acceptable middle ground that will give us universal clout. A way to hold on to Jesus and at the same time explain him away. To accept him as our God, but leave others the space to be considered acceptable to God while denying Jesus Christ. It's impossible. And if that shrinks our church, then it has to shrink our church. Because we can't, we can't deny what Scripture says about who Jesus Christ is. We can't compromise on that. It is possible to disagree with some over, someone over a doctrinal scriptural issue and not be at odds with them over who Jesus Christ is. Don't, please mark that down. We can disagree on some things, but we cannot disagree on who Christ is clearly revealed to be. We can't say, we can't look at the clear revelation of the Holy Spirit and pointing us to who Jesus Christ is and all of a sudden say, I'm okay, I'm going to heaven, but that's not God's son, that's Satan. You can't do that. Pharisees are not okay. 
the religious system is not okay. The leaven, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees had so engulfed them that they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is not to deny Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. Um, I love First and Second Peter, and he denied him three times. And he was not accused of blasphemy, right? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus Christ. One writer said, The Spirit reveals the truth of salvation in Christ. Those who speak evil of that revelation, as the Pharisees had done in Luke eleven fifteen, 15, reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit to Christ and cut themselves off from any source of divine saving truth. If you look at the Spirit revealing who Christ is and then you deny Christ, you have committed blasphemy, saying He is not the Son of God. He is Satan. Finally, as we consider verses 8 to 12, the saving Holy Spirit is the sustaining Holy Spirit. Even in your darkest, most challenging hour, these Pharisees are going to try to persuade you. These Pharisees are going to try to persecute you. These Pharisees are going to kill you. But the Spirit will sustain you in your darkest hour. They will bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. And he said, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't try to come up with a backup plan. Yeah, he didn't say he's going to get you out of it. He didn't say they're not going to kill you. He didn't say they're not going to persecute you. I have to be honest with you and tell you, if they come for me, I'm going to put them in a position to have to end my life immediately rather than torture me. But if somehow they sneak up on me and I don't catch them, right? then I have to rest in the finished work of the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and the point is this, that we don't feel this pressure to deny Christ. And what he's telling us is this, that severe trials cannot shatter true faith. If, if my faith is in my external performance, if my faith is in pleasing man, if my faith is in a religious institution or a religious system, if my faith is in how well people think I'm doing because maybe I've checked the boxes or I'm performing well or I'm saying all the right things, if my faith is in that, then yes, when I'm squeezed and pressured, I'm going to conform to the fear of man. And yes, when I'm squeezed in persecution, I'm going to conform to the fear of man. But if my faith is in Christ and Him crucified... The one to who I'm confessing before men constantly and regularly and never compromising. If my faith is in him, then true faith will be sustained through severe trials. Severe trials cannot shatter true faith. Once we are saved by the power of the Spirit, we do not need to live in fear of man. We do not need to shrink back from confessing Jesus Christ as our Lord to everyone everywhere. We do not need to rationalize it out and make contingency plans. We don't need to try to have an apologetic response. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. He will comfort us. He will strengthen us. He will teach us. And if need be, listen, He will let us die well. He will let us die well. 
There is no place else to go but to him. Four uh, statements of application, and then we're going to remember the Lord. Um, First of all, we overcome the fear of man by living for judgment day. We overcome the fear of man by living for judgment day. We need to be ready for the judgment. We need to look forward to the judgment because pressure is the real live pressure will come to the followers of Jesus Christ. And we will be tempted to put on a mask. We will be tempted to project an image. But we're not, we're not living for those who will judge us here or who could even kill us here. We're looking forward to judgment day. We overcome the fear of man by living for judgment day. Secondly, the text has borne this out. We overcome the fear of man by being willing to suffer. By being willing to suffer. By being willing to stand up for Jesus Christ in the face of those who would threaten to even kill our body. Disciples of Jesus Christ will be persecuted. They will experience pain and agony. In a therapeutic age, we want to feel better. We don't want anybody to talk to us about damnation or hell or fire or brimstone. Our worst enemy is physical pain and suffering. But our greatest threat is standing before a holy God without Jesus Christ. We overcome the fear of man by being willing to suffer. Thirdly, verses 6 and 7 bear this out. We overcome the fear of man with the the love of God. Our, Our God knows us so well. He knows you better than anybody knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your body. He knows everything about you. And the text is is telling us, why would you fear men who want to kill you because you don't conform to them when you could be in this relationship with this God who loves you so much that he knows everything about you? We overcome fear of man with the love of God. And then finally, we overcome the fear of man with the fear of God. We overcome the fear of man by living for judgment day. We overcome the fear of man by being willing to suffer. We overcome the fear of man with the love of God, and we overcome the fear of man with the fear of God. That should drive our life. If you're like me, you struggle, many of us do, with the fear of man. As I read that list at the beginning of the service, my wife is like, that's my husband. <laughs> and it's a trap, folks. And it's a trap that religion will lure you into and work you to death and leave you to die apart from the hope of the gospel. And so be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Be aware of our propensity to feel so so dirty, so corrupt, so sinful that we need to project an image when Christ came to transform our hearts. Let him do his work in your heart. Find yourself in community where people know you and know you well and you can look in their eyes and you can see that they're viewing you through the lens of the gospel and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you will be set free. You will be set free.